On Wednesday of this week, the Institute of Ideas, in conjunction with Spite, held a public meeting in London to discuss the growing need to defend democracy in the wake of last week's EU referendum result. The following podcast is a recording of that event in full. The chair is Tom Slater. Thank you all so much for coming um, to this Spite Institute of Ideas public meeting, Brexit, the battle for democracy starts here. My name's Tom Slater, I'm Deputy Editor at Spiked, and I'll be chairing the event this evening. Now, before I introduce our speakers and let you know a little bit about how tonight's going to run, I just want to tell you a little bit about why we're here. Now, on the surface, that's pretty obvious. Last week, we saw a seismic political event. Um, the British public voted to leave the European Union in what I think I'm right in saying. Hello. <laughs> In what I think I'm right in saying is the biggest democratic mandate in political history, or British political history. And it's already had a huge impact. It's already sparked some uncertainty on the markets. It's um, sparked the unravelling of the both main political parties. It's left the EU's moral authority severely damaged. And it's also left for people on all sides of this debate a lot of uncertainty about what might happen next. But the reason we called this meeting tonight is not so much that we recognise that Brexit is a big deal, um, but it's also that it's a big opportunity. There's certainly been a lot of pessimism in the last couple of days, coming mainly from the political elite and the media, but as Spikes and the IOI, two organisations that argued for Brexit in the name of popular sovereignty, um, we see this vote as a cause for optimism. This is a real blow for democracy and it's a chance for all of us to reshape politics. It was a really tremendous democratic moment. I know from that whoop earlier, I don't need to tell you that. But it's also a fragile one. So Spite has been railing against the EU for all of our 15 years. But it wasn't just because we recognised that the European Union was a bureaucratic, unaccountable institution that was forged of a distrust of the public, although that's, all of that is entirely true. Um, but also because we recognised that it was a manifestation of an anti-democratic sentiment that cuts across all of the national elites within it. Brussels is really not the sole preserve of anti-democratic sentiment. I think over the past couple of days, we've seen that play out before our very eyes. So we've had MPs calling for a second referendum, or at least to block Brexit in Parliament. Everyone seemingly overnight becoming some sort of constitutional expert as to how <laughs> this could possibly be pulled off. Um, and then also just a lot of talk that Leave voters were somehow tricked, hoodwinked, that they had their prejudices exploited, that they were either kind of betrayed by their own ignorance or just moted by their own bigotry. So the battle for democracy, as the title of tonight suggests, really is only beginning. But tonight we want to look at those positives, look at how we might harness this new democratic agitation, this rejection of the political elite, and how we could push it further, just peel away those kind of anti-democratic forces that have come to the fore, that this really is a huge opportunity. And so to set off the discussion we, tonight, we have two fantastic speakers who I'll introduce in the order in which they'll speak. So first on my immediate right, we have Frank Ferradi. Frank is a sociologist, commentator, author of countless books, including Politics of Fear Beyond Left and Right, and Authority, a Sociological History, to name but two. And he's, of course, a regular contributor to Spikes and a regular speaker at the IOI Battle of Ideas Festival. Speaking after Frank, we have Claire Fox. 
Claire is the director of the Institute of Ideas, convener of the Battle of Ideas Festival, a regular panellist on BBC Radio 4's Moral Maze, and the author of a fantastic new book, I Find That Offensive. So, Frank is going to give an opening talk for about 30 minutes. Um, I'll then hand over to Claire, who will give a 10-minute response, and then we'll come straight out to all of you. So, this is not a Brexit rally, as much as it might seem, <laughs> in some respects. I know I might be looking at the entire Brexit voting population of London. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, this is really a chance for all of us, whether you voted to leave or to remain, to get stuck in. This discussion really is about all of us. So, we look forward to your contributions. Without further ado, Frank. Yeah, good evening, everybody. I think in order to be able to see the positives in what has happened and to see whether it's possible to develop that into something more durable and long-lasting, it's quite important that we take a step back and understand what is really going on, what are the motives, the dynamics that have uh, come into being, especially in the last week, but they were already visible in some shape or form for some time to come. I think it's particularly important for us because uh, I don't think anybody in this room, I hope nobody in this room, could have been possibly inspired by either the Leave campaign or the Remain campaign. I think what I was really struck by is that both of the campaigns were conspicuously evasive. They uh, didn't take the public very seriously, didn't engage with us uh, at the level of ideas, didn't actually believe that we were capable of discussing and reflecting on complex issues. And both sides, rather, uh, you know, rather uh, almost spontaneously, just appealed to the most simplistic aspect of their case. And, and that really was very disappointing. It was very difficult for there to be a, a progressive, democratically oriented, liberal-minded, uh, positive uh, argument to come across under those kinds of conditions. So I think it's important to, for us to realize that the results, the positive results that have emerged, have come about not because of the campaign, but in spite of it. And it really shows us that there is something reasonably positive underneath the, the vote that has occurred. I think that's very important to bear in mind. I assume that most of the people in this room are somewhere in between uh, the positions of being believers in the importance of popular sovereignty, and it, we take democracy seriously. Last night I was involved in a debate in Oxford, and all my opponents were trying to explain to me that democracy is a means to something else, not really realizing that democracy is valuable in and of itself. It's a value that we affirm as a way of life, something that you want to live with, and something that you want to live through. So I think that's something that needs to be understood. So on the one hand, I think that I think most of us would uh, uphold the importance of popular sovereignty. And I don't think that anybody in this room are particularly obsessed by the immigration issue uh, in the kind of racialized, uh, narrow way in which it's sometimes presented, sometimes in a caricatured form, because that's not really why, uh, sort of from, uh, certainly from my standpoint, uh, leaving Europe uh, is, is really, really important. I think that uh, what's really nice, certainly for me, having lived through a, a fairly dreary few decades in political life, is that the referendum certainly represents 
at least a shift towards the politics of accountability. It makes accountability much, much easier. I think politicians <clears throat> will find it much more difficult to hide behind technocratic, uh, uh, jingoistic languages. It's much more open as far as the political issues are, are, are based. And also, one of the things that has occurred in the last few days is that uh, sovereignty based on democratic principles has become much more uh, a, a real deal, something that's really out in the open. And it seems to me that getting out of Europe and freeing society from its system of technocratic governance is the precondition for the restoration of the political. But it's only the precondition. It doesn't actually guarantee anything. Just because you get out of Europe doesn't necessarily mean that political life will come to a new renaissance and that the ideals, the positive ideals that many of, us are, many of us believe in are going to be realized just by in and of itself. It's basically about creating the conditions where discussions about national sovereignty, where, the, where we can begin to question the previous decades where national sovereignty was devalued and, and, and pathologized as a negative phenomenon uh, could be uh, challenged. I think one of the nice things that has occurred is that after the recent events, the insulated system of technocratic governance, which was run on, uh, uh, principally by the European Union, but was also promoted by all the national governments, uh, are going to become much more difficult to promote. And certainly that has importance for us, because one of the consequences of insulated democratic governance, its technocratic form, is that its main mission is to depoliticize every single issue. Every single question that's of importance to us as human beings has been depoliticized in the way that uh, public life has been conducted uh, over the last 30 or 40 years. And that really has not been called into question. You know, I, th I think it's very interesting that one of the few occasions when the debate er uh, erupted into something that had substantive content was when all of a sudden it became evident to sections of the media and to the political classes that the moral status of expertise was being called into question. And I don't know if you remember, when a couple of times people said, don't listen to the experts. And it's almost unthinkable for a British politician to say, don't think of the experts. Because for the last 40 years, they all hid behind expertise. They all hid behind so-called evidence-based policy. They all avoided putting themselves on the line and, and, and engaging with uh, issues of, of a normative political character. And when all of a sudden expertise is in the limelight, you have all these people who can barely spell the word expert saying how important it is. And how could you not take expertise very, very seriously? And they would use all these trivial examples. You know, I remember somebody emailing me, you know, Frank, if you got, a, if you got cancer, you know, don't you want to go and see an expert doctor? You know, and if you uh, have a, a serious problem with your car, don't you want to see a, an expert mechanic? I mean, they were really bringing it down to the level at which they were confusing the professional skills that many people in all walks of life have with that of political leadership, of political direction, that somehow these were the functional equivalents uh, rather than understanding that there is no such thing as expertise in 
political life. There's no such thing as, as an expert leader. We have expert managers, which, which is what these guys are. Maybe not experts, but managers. <laughs> and then we have political leaders who are guided by, hopefully, by political principles. And it seems to me that one of the things that came out in the campaign for a very brief period is that once the status of the expert was called into question, it really risks being seen as an emperor with no clothes. All of a sudden, it became very evident that so-called claims of expertise are, are really not based upon any serious philosophical principles, any real moral depth, but they really were essentially technocratic skills that were being promoted as essential for the governing of society. And I think that was a very positive development. And it seems to me that one of the consequences of the demystification of expertise that has begun to occur, it's, it's, it's still not completed because in our society, the role of the expert is still something that is taken far too seriously. But one of the consequences of calling expertise into question is that now politicians, or at least people who call themselves politicians, they will now have to argue and account for themselves in the language of politics, the language of politics, something that has been missing on all sides of the equation, and something, by the way, that since the vote has been self-consciously avoided by both sides uh, of, the, of this uh, debate that we had in the last few months. So that's been a very, really positive development, certainly from my standpoint. What I find fascinating is that since the referendum, the issue of popular sovereignty, which is something that both Spike and the Institute of Ideas have always promoted and talked about, is now being recognized as at the whole center of the EU debate. It's being recognized negatively in the sense that you will have noticed that there's been a tremendous number of publications and articles and commentaries issued calling into question the fundamental principle of popular sovereignty, calling into question not, not just simply popular sovereignty, but even representative government, actually calling into question all the instruments through which democracy came into life over the last 2,000 years. And if you looked at the language which has been used, it's almost like a blast from the past. It's almost like you go back to ancient Greece, where anti-democratic theory first developed, and where very persuasive arguments were put forward as to why the demos cannot be trusted and why democracy is on balance the worst possible government. I mean, in those days, they were quite upfront and explicit about it. But you now have you know, the same kind of arguments being put forward in a language that is far more open and far more explicit than one could have imagined. Just this morning, coming down on the train from Oxford, I saw a referendum being described as a blunt instrument. Somebody writing an article, not just somebody, but several people writing an article, which, are, which criticized the referendum on the basis that it means the winner takes all, <laughs> right? The winner. And I think that, you know, I, I, I thought it was very interesting that all of a sudden we are critical of the fact that the winner, that's to say the 52%, take all and dispossess the 48%, as if there is something new about that. As if we don't live in a parliamentary system 
where the winner certainly takes all, often on the basis of only being supported by the minority of the electorate. Now, we have a parliamentary system which is uniquely undemocratic in the sense that members, many members of parliament do not enjoy the support of the majority, and yet they take all. You know, they don't say the day after they were elected to the defeated candidates, come on guys, we'll share. You know, on Monday and Tuesday, you can be in parliament, I'll, I'll be there for the rest of the week. Uh, they certainly have no inhibitions about taking it all and, and building it up. But nobody's ever criticized our form of parliamentary democracy, our form of elections, as somehow illegitimate because the winner take all. We even have the uh, coming back of the old arguments, which you might have picked up on, on the tyranny of the majority, presumably in favor of the tyranny of the minority <laughs> as being a far preferable option, and that somehow this kind of 19th century Victorian condemnation of the people becomes recycled in a language which is totally similar to, the, to what anti-democratic politicians, reactionary politicians, would have argued in the past. And what's really interesting, and this shows you the high level of self-deception, and maybe it's even conscious deception, is that all these criticisms that you read about the nature of a referendum in the last few days are, are mounted by people who never questioned the legitimacy of the referendum before it occurred. I mean, I don't know how many articles you read you know, three, four months ago which denounced the referendum as an illegitimate form of expressing the will of the people. All of a sudden, people who had no views on the subject beforehand have turned into amateur political philosophers <laughs> who are going on about how this is uh, an anti-democratic way of, of moving forward. Having said that, there are obviously limitations to referendum, and I wouldn't necessarily advise it as the only foundation on which the democratic will can be expressed, but it certainly has a, sig a serious role to play in the way that democracy unfolds and, and crystallizes into giving meaning to, to the actions and acts of the citizens. You will have noticed that uh, in recent days, particular venom has been directed against the one slogan of the Leave campaign that I thought was actually quite good, which is to take back control. Take back control. Actually, it's not a perfect slogan, because between ourselves, who uh, don't necessarily suffer from their naivety, we never really had that much control to begin with. Right? It's not as if in the good old days we controlled our destiny. So taking back control is, you know, on surface sounds good, but it overlooks the fact that a far better slogan could have been to take control, to take control, to con take control in ways that was uh, not possible in the past, rather than simply uh, create this fantasy that in the old days uh, there was a, a much more democratically accountable system. But of course, the criticisms that members of the Labour Party and the Conservative Party are making and it's interesting that both parties, I'm not even talking about the Lib Dems, you know, who are neither liberal or democratic, <laughs> right? I'm not even talking about them, but, but both the Conservatives and the, and, the, and, and the Labour Party have come out quite strongly against the uh, taking, take back control slogan. 
And it seems to me that what they are telling us, what they're trying to sell us, is that actually the idea of, uh, of control is a fantasy. It's something that is a, is a total fantasy. You, you cannot have control. And without knowing, without really accounting for it, what they are really saying is that both freedom and autonomy, the sense of self-determination, are these ideals that we will talk about now and again when the next anniversary of the Magna Carta comes around a thousand years from now. But in the real world, in everyday reality, the idea of us controlling our destiny is this very foolish fantasy that we mustn't really dream about. And just today, Gordon Brown, who can always be relied upon to put the most kind of dreary, technocratic <laughs> uh, sort of argument forward uh, in, and, in, in a way that kind of is, is almost contemptuous of the electorate, he basically puts forward an argument that is more or less the one that underpins all the ones that have been put forward, which is how can you talk about control? How can you talk about control in a world that we live in, which is dominated by the forces of globalization? I mean, have you heard that? <clears throat> the number of times we're told how silly it is for English people or British people to take their own institutions seriously because there are these you know, force of globalization out there that will always have the last say, the last word in everything that is seriously and significantly important. In many respects, the EU bureaucracy itself has always the argument that the force of globalization are the ones that make it really impossible, almost amateurish, for a national government to seriously govern because it really hasn't got the instruments to deal with these pressures that are out there. And of course, where did we first hear of this argument? Where, where was the first time this was most systematically expressed in the British context? And you don't need a PhD in political science if, to, to note that this argument about the force of globalization, the impossibility of control, the impossibility of choice, was most forcefully and eloquently expressed by Margaret Thatcher when she said there is no alternative. Tina, there is no alternative. That was, in many respects, the most coherent formulation, the most anti-political formulation that you can put forward. People always associate Tina with Thatcherite conservatism, but it was equally, equally adopted and embraced by all the main political parties and, of course, also by the commentary, people who make comments on, on the media. So... We have a situation where, in, in, in the 21st century, the most distinct dimension of anti-democratic theory, anti-democratic theory mutates and changes its shape with every generation, but the most distinct feature of anti-democratic theory today is the idea that controls an impossibility, that the force of globalization create a new world where it isn't really possible for national governments to do anything that has any serious content to it. So we might as well give up and let Juncker in Brussels or the IMF or any other inter international organization carry on and do the business. Now, of course, TINA and the arguments about globalization are not the only constituent elements in anti-democratic imagination because anti-democratic imagination today also draws on the resources of the classical arguments that have been mounted against taking democracy seriously. All the old arguments 
that have been raised in the last 2,000 years have reoccurred and reappeared with monotonous regularity in the most uh, recent uh, period. So you have, in particular, a very destructive argument which suggests that the electorate, the people, are too unreliable, they're too irrational, they played the role of, of irresponsible citizens. How can you imagine, how can you possibly go forward if you base your, your future on the electoral decisions of these people? And of course, there are some people uh, in Britain who don't go as far as, as suggest that the people are stupid. I mean, you are too sensitive to say that explicitly. And instead of saying that the electorate, particularly working class people, are idiots, instead of just simply asserting that, what they are arguing is that what happened in this election campaign is that people were fooled by all the lies that were mounted at them. They were confused by the propaganda from the Daily Mail and the Express, and because of their relatively minimal intellectual capacities, they believed it, and hence we have this false result in the election. So the old scenario, if you can just imagine it, where a, a working class family sits around the breakfast table in Burnley, voraciously reading the Daily Mail and the Express, and then saying, oh, I never realized that before. Now I am convinced. You know, this 2,000-word this common piece written by this person in Daily Mail has convinced me what to do. That kind of model of how people operate says a lot about what these commentators actually think of working-class people in Burnley. You don't have to call them explicitly any negative names. You assume that that's really how they behave. That's really what, they, what they're all, all about. So what does the outcome of the referendum represent? Because I think, what's, to me, what's the best thing about the referendum is that all these people who've been subjugated to this propaganda for weeks and weeks and weeks, who've been told that uncertainty that will occur will have very negative effect on their livelihood, their economic circumstances and job, all these things that have, have occurred and have been said to them, have nevertheless stood up and ignored it. I think that is really quite something. And they've ignored it. I mean, I was actually you know, pleasantly surprised by the large numbers of people that basically said, at the end of the day, we'd rather choose uncertainty, we'd rather play the uncertainty card than to opt for the certainty of more of the same. And I think that takes a bit of courage. I think that was a very positive de development that has occurred. I think that's something that people refuse, particularly people in the Remain campaign, refuse to recognize and prefer to pathologize these voters as racist scum or xenophobes or any, anything else that, uh, any other pathology that they can imagine. And at the same time, you know, as people have said that we refuse to be taken for granted and that we want to be taken seriously, it's obviously the case that the majority of the people that voted for Brexit didn't vote on the same basis that you and I might have voted for it, on the basis of having a, a, a robust, firm uh, su support for the ideals of democracy or popular sovereignty. I think people don't vote like that necessarily in their millions. It's also the case, 
and it's an interesting point that we need to dwell into in a, in a bit of detail, that the issue of immigration did play a very important role in the election. I think it's important to realize that uh, the vote uh, on both sides was very much influenced by the way that the immigration issue played itself out over the last period. And I think that can be seen as, in a negative sense, I think it also has some positive aspects to it. Because I don't think anybody who seriously understands the, 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 the internal life of people in our society would argue that we have 17.5 million racist people or any, anything like that, that racism is really on the rise in the way that the media has been suggesting in the recent period. I think that uh, migration and immigration in the present context, in the present moment, is different in the way that it's experienced than in the past. Historically, immigration and migration has been a very central feature of right-wing racist politics. It's, it's been the, the main focus uh, of their mobilization, certainly in the British context. However, I think something has changed because I would argue that in the current climate, immigration is a political issue not simply about the free movement of people. The question of immigration isn't really about the right of people to move freely anywhere they choose to do. Immigration has acquired a very different context. What I want to suggest, and I'm quite interested in your views on this, is that in large parts of Europe, migration today also serves as a medium through which people's lives have become transformed. That for most people, migration has become a, a, a kind of a, a norm, a, a value, through which they experience some fundamental changes through their life. And I would suggest that certainly for working class people, but also for others, migration has meant, in the most recent period, a sense of loss of control and also a kind of sense of cultural insecurity about a world that they're not in control of and a, and a world they do not have never made or nor understand. But migration has done that not in the way that it's classically explained. It's, you know, the way it's classically explained is that immigration, because it means cheap labor, it, it kind of brings down the wages of people, does all these bad, horrible things for, for working class people, and that's why we should uh, do something about it. I think what's important about migration, and this is, became very clear in the course of the referendum, is that it actually touches on the sphere of culture and meaning. It touches on the way that people's cultural life, their traditions, their system of meaning is really uh, sort of affected. And the reason for that, and I think this is really the novel dimension of recent development, the reason for that is that migration has become embedded in a wider conflict over cultural values. I don't think you can separate the migration debate as a discrete entity from all the other debates about the, about the cultural values that have occurred within our society. I would suggest that immigration has become a vehicle through which lifestyles and the traditions of a community have become increasingly questioned then marginalized, and finally pathologized. 
And I say this because one of the interesting things that at first I could never understand is why was it that these people, the, the Tory leadership, the Labour leadership, all these people, have suddenly converted to a pro-migration system of values. I couldn't understand because I'm young, I'm old enough, I was going to say young enough, but I'm, I'm old enough to remember that there was a time you know, when I used to be involved in campaigns against immigration controls when the entire political class regarded immigrants as at best a, an inconvenience that you've got to put up with, but in general had a phenomenal amount of hostility towards it. And yet these very same people or their, uh, their descendants have adopted almost the uh, opposite approach. And I think the reason for that is because they're not simply motivated by economics, but what they are principally driven by is the desire to establish a new value system that can legitimate their role in this world. A new system of values to which they can make sense of who we are. And what is this? It's interesting because one of the interesting things about the transformation of immigration into a value is that it's now become a phenomenon that is seen as something that is good in and of itself. What we're seeing unfolding today, and it's been here for some time, is an abstract sense of cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism that's summed up by this implicit slogan of no borders. Now, no borders sounds nice, but what it really means is freedom from accountability. I don't know if you, have you ever heard of the organization called, organization called Médecins Sans Frontières? You know, doctors without, I think they probably do a reasonably good job, not in everything. If you were to Google without borders, you will find there's a prolifer proliferation of organization, organizations that are all committed to getting rid of borders, lawyers without borders, plumbers without borders. <laughs> I mean, literally, every profession now claims moral status by distancing itself from some kind of borders. And the reason for that is, of course, because what has happened is that the no-border discussion and the transformation of migration into this sacrosanct you know, value has played a very important role in giving this abstract cosmopolitan sensibility a certain amount of meaning and context. All the other values that are fashionable in the 21st century are ta at least tangentially linked to migration. Take the, the value of diversity. It's a concept I always criticize because it's not really a value. I mean, diversity is the, is, just simply means the many. And the very fact that we turn, the, we kind of turn the, our recognition that there are many of us into value is, is a little bit thin when it comes to normative thinking. But diversity has become a value that is linked to this whole sense that the more, or more differences there are, the better the world becomes. Interesting that the value of diversity never extends to the diversity of opinions. That is not something that is cool. You know, we don't want conflicting opinions. You know, we want same old, same old being said, but never as diversity is put forward as this kind of value. Multicultural, and multicultural is really interesting. I think everybody in this room is for multi, a multi-ethnic society. I mean, we like the fact that we rub shoulders with all kinds of people. It's, you know, you don't have to like it. It's not a value, but it's something that, you know, it just seems quite natural. 
But multiculturalism is something that is very, very different. It's interesting because multiculturalism is not a value that the, any group of immigrants brought into Britain. You know, when the Sikhs came into England, they say, oh yeah, I want a multicultural society. You know, or when you had people coming from the Caribbean, they didn't say, we want a multicultural society. It's not something that any particular group has signed up to. Multiculturalism is an elite ideology which allows a section of society, it gives them the moral authority to speak on behalf of all these different cultures, which strengthens, the, again, that kind of cosmopolitan value system. It's based upon accepting the values that have been concocted by these elites. And ultimately, all these values come together by a practice which I'm sure you have noticed, which is very rarely explicitly acknowledged, which is basically this. If you or anybody in this room ask the question, who are we, or if you ever used the second person plural, this is who we are, Invariably, I had this last night in a debate in Oxford, somebody puts up their hands, it's not legitimate to say we, because the minute we say we, we exclude others. And it sounds very sensitive and pleasant. You know, we are so beyond we that everybody is, is the same. And of course, the people who tell us not to be so exclusivist as to talk about we, because inclusion is also one of these ideals that is really important. And if anybody does what I do, which is talk about we, then you're accused of othering. Have you ever heard of othering? <laughs> Not mothering, it's othering. Yeah. Mothering is all right. Othering is basically this kind of uh, pseudo-social science concept uh, that suggests that if you make moral distinctions, if you make cultural dif- bring, bring out cultural differences, you other those other people. Interesting that the people that have very strong views against othering have been working overtime in the last few days of othering the working class. You know, the language they use to talk about them, those people, those brainless idiots, is in fact, according to their account, a classical form of othering. But they wouldn't recognize that because implicit in the abstract cosmopolitan value system is the value of double standards. It's, it's, it's a fact is... <laughs> No, seriously, it's, you know, we have the right to make statements that you are denied because your views are inherently illegitimate. So I just want to suggest to you that in these circumstances, the issue of migration ceases to be about the movement of people and becomes the project of socializing society into a different new culture whose main purpose is to distance people from the values of the old, to distance people from the legacy of the past. And it's this old and new, which is at the center (coughs) of British political life. And it's not an accident that if you have values between old and new so sharply contrasted, then of course the people who are promoting this are also going to be actively promoting the construction of a generation gap. We'll actually want to make it clear that the young are, 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 are on our side, the young are great, you know, because they are not really bound by the burden of the old. The old, on the other hand, are pretty scummy. They still have all these traditional views that they need to be distant from, distanced from. 
So this is the background to it, and I just want to conclude by saying a few things about what does this mean for the future. In these interesting times, and they are genuinely interesting, there are tremendous possibilities for reviving politics in its proper sense, of changing the very nature of the discourse, of involving a lot more people in debates of substance. I think there are, there's a real opening for us, at least in the short term, not just for us, but for anybody, because there, there must be even some good people in the Remain campaign. I think it's very important we don't just write people off and have, have this kind of narrow, polarized discussion. I think, no, I'd rather mother them than other them, you know, sort of. I think that, uh, you know, sort of on both sides, there is a, a minority of people that can be mobilized to take the new, these new possibilities that are presented to us seriously. I do think that as matters stand, this is a very short, limited opportunity. The window isn't wide. It's, 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 it's very, very narrow. There is a, a lot of countervailing forces that are trying to create a, a climate of insecurity. If you look at the hysteria that's been going on in Britain about the apparent rise of racist attacks, where just about anything, if you look at a person like this and not smile, that's considered to be a racist attack on my Polish butcher. You know, when you have that kind of you know, sort of construction of a mass hysteria, you, you know that we are here, we are in for a very difficult time. And I think that we are not going through a period where there are people on both sides that are actually committed to thwarting Brexit, who really don't want to see Brexit happening. And I think that at the moment, if things unfold according to the present dynamic, I'm fairly convinced that Brexit will not happen. Or if it will happen, it will happen in an extremely mild, you know, sort of extremely harmless kind of a fashion. It will be a performance of Brexit rather than its reality. I think that's really what's on the cards. And it isn't just simply the people that are asking for new referendums. It isn't just simply the people that are calling into question the legitimacy of the, of the election. I think a lot more people are trying to drag out the process or alternatively sidetrack it in a very narrow, narrow technical direction about markets, about the movement of people, and as, if, as if that's all that matters. And as if the only thing that we're concerned about is the r relationship between the number of people that come into Britain and, and, our, and our economic uh, uh, access to, 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 to the market. So I think in, in this sense there are some very real threats to the openings that have, that have occurred. But the thing that we, have, we can really kind of count on, and this is really what I want to end on, is that the meaning of democracy is something that can no longer be evaded in the old way. You know, our political class are, are not very good at governing. I mean, they are not bad at tinkering around the margins here and there and raising taxes by two pence or lowering about... But when it comes to substantial changes or knowing how to deal with how you actually govern, they're, not, they're probably as experienced as everybody in this room. But they've never done it. And not only have they never done it, they don't want to do it because it's something that they are entirely estranged from. So the good thing is, is that in this context, we have a possibility of discussing the meaning of representation. We have the possibility of insisting that we have government and not governance. Uh, that's something that is very much on our, on our cards. And I think that our job in the, in the short term, at any rate, 
is to do what we can to legitimate the outcome of the referendum. I think we have to go out and, and give it political legitimacy that this was a legitimate act and to win greater and greater support for that. And at some point, sooner rather than later, tomorrow rather than five months from now, we should begin to see whether we can create some kind of a, a movement, some, some kind of dynamic, offline, online, which can begin to insist that our so-called representatives get on with the challenge of getting out of Europe. I think it's very important that we go out and indicate that we don't want to wait two years, we don't want to wait until October, you don't need to have a, a degree in constitutional law to work out the fact that we as a nation have taken a step that we can act upon. And I think it's quite important that we become a pressure group at the very beginning, hopefully something a little bit more important, that tries to move society in that kind of direction towards a genuine, liberal, democratic movement that upholds the ideals of popular sovereignty and actually demands that we take political life, public life more seriously. Thank you. Thank you very much, Frank and Claire. Uh, uh, thank you, Frank. That was uh, a lot to think about there. And I think that um, that speech was rich with ideas. And I think that one of the things that we have to recognise with some humility in this time is, is that we also, all of us, have to up our game and to really approach things beyond sound bites and to really dig deep into what a lot of the present circumstances mean and how significant they are. Having said that, I'm now going to do a rather superficial uh, couple of notes on uh, things I've been thinking about, uh, uh, just, uh, just quickly in a slightly different way. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, when I was visiting my mum, who's in a care home in North Wales, um, the staff um, started chatting to me about the EU referendum and were over a coffee chatting about the pros and cons, um, why, asking me why they couldn't vote for European commissioners, uh, discussing trade tariffs, uh, because whether it would affect the local steelworks. Um, there was a big debate on immigration, whether we should have an, a points-based system. Uh, um, they were, uh, some, one of them said that the Farage poster was bloody irrelevant because they're Syrians, not Polish, and the Polish are the problem. I mean, you know, it's a no-holds-barred discussion. I'm just saying. And... Um, but the thing that was most interesting was the first time I'd, I go to that home regularly and I get on very well with all of the women who work there, and it's mainly women, um, and we'd never talked politics before. And what really struck me was how thoughtful and serious they were. They um, haven't got degrees, they haven't got A-levels, they haven't got O-levels or GCSEs. Um, they're care workers who took the responsibility for voting in this referendum incredibly seriously and wanted to discuss it and did discuss it and um, were, as it were, a, a snapshot of, I think, what was happening around the country. Meantime, when I go home, um, I go to the local Catholic church and the local Catholic priest is an Indian uh, priest um, and he came out to me as a Brexiter, having heard me on the radio. So after mass, we'd kind of get involved in all these kind of big debates that were not spiritual um, meantime, my family and my friends, um, rather than my political colleagues, have had uh, big arguments about this. It's a kind of split family. Some people voted Remain, others voted Brexit. There's been lots of swapping of our 
spectacles, lots of arguing. Um, and I think that that has been replicated throughout the country. And I think that the reason I say that is because if the EU referendum did nothing else, then I think it did capture the imagination of millions of people. Um, in, and British citizens rose to the challenge and voted in their droves. And, um, and I think we might think that this might be a snapshot of what an active democratic society might look like. People actually arguing with each other, uh, not hitting each other, arguing with each other quite robustly, sometimes uh, uh, being quite rude to each other, but actually taking each other seriously and trying to work through what the future might look like, which is why it's particularly galling that when the public actually got involved and voted in good faith in that way, gave a decisive answer to a question they were asked by the people who run society on terms that were set by the people who run society, that when they gave that answer, they were told they'd given the wrong answer, that there was immediately a backlash, uh, that there was powerful forces lined up already to try and subvert that democratic will, as has been discussed by Franken, as, as well known by people in this room. An attempt to overturn this referendum has been openly discussed, but one of the things which I wanted to draw attention to is one of the most powerful anti-democratic trends that we've witnessed in this whole process has been the attitude to the demos, the attitude to those droves and millions of people who took that decision one way or another, and a conclusion that they weren't up to the task of making a decision about their future. A lot of people um, um, that have um, um, been arguing this have made a point about um, uh, that people, we now live in a post a post-factual world. This has become a new uh, uh, fashionable phrase that you'll notice uh, around the place. Uh, to quote one person, when the facts met the myths, they were as useless as bullets bouncing on the bodies of aliens in a H.G. Wells novel. When Michael Gove said the British people are sick of experts, uh, this led to a lead of anti-intellectualism. And you'll be familiar with all this, right? So you gave the people the facts and what did they do? They didn't take any notice of us. And Frank has discussed that in relation to expertise, I think, really given us some real insights there. But the, the reason I mention that is because, and I, I've just done a talk today at school, and people kept saying, but, you know, that message on the bus, that message on the bus, everybody thought that message on the bus was true. I mean, I don't know anyone in the country who believed that message on the bus. I don't believe anyone in the country who believes politicians full stop as it goes, right? So it's not as though everyone was going around going, I've read the message of the politicians and it is true, or it is not true, and that's why I voted. And I illustrated with the care home story that people were much more, uh, took it in a much more complicated way than that. But I also want to say, and I know that there are people here who voted Remain, and I think that I'm really uh, delighted there are people who have come trying to work out what this all means. That, you know, lots of people who voted Remain were very serious about voting Remain. They were and should not be caricatured as anything other than the same people. I mean, the care home workers, by the way, split both ways as which way they were going to vote. It wasn't straightforward. Um, people were serious about this, including lots of people who voted Remain. But what I would say is that all the people who voted Remain did not do so based on an entirely statistical, factual analysis, right? This became something of a moral signifier. You know, if you said that you were Remain, well, you didn't. In fact, you know, every dinner party I went to, because I go to dinner parties, every dinner party I went to, everybody sat round and basically assumed everyone there was Remain because we were obviously all intelligent 
cosmopolitan types. And then when you say we're Brexit, you, you know, it's like everyone went, oh my God, you know, what happened there? Right. And then they sort of go, but you're intelligent, right? So this what, right, you know, you're in it. So what I'm trying to say is there was a kind of moral signifier. If we're honest, everybody did it, right? Everybody had a sense of what it might mean to be on either side of that. And, and I, so I therefore think that it's, it's just too much to have to listen to people saying that all the people who voted Brexit were, were the ones who had the facts and all the people who voted Remain were the, were the others. In, in immediate, in, it's also the case that it's been ironic that so many people have said that, you know, the problem was, was that all the people who voted Brexit have had an emotional spasm of irrationality. But everybody I know, and I mean everybody I know, including lots of people in this room who voted Remain, keep telling me that they haven't stopped crying since Friday. Now, I don't mind that, right? I mean, no, but I, I'm serious, right? I get emotional. All I'm saying is you can't then go, you had an emotional spasm, then everyone has an emotional spasm, but that's not meant to be an emotional spasm. I, 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 think, that it, I, I think, though, that one worry that Frank alluded to about immigration and what he said about immigration is really really interesting. I think we have to discuss it more. But I think there is a genuine, and I take this seriously, since I've been involved in anti-racism for many years, there is a genuine concern that there is an increase in racism, that this will lead to an increase in racism, that's, that people were motivated by racism. I think that we need to be alert to that, right? I'm not, I, I, you know, there are idiots uh, of the kind of far right who've been lurking in the shadows because they're so isolated, you undoubtedly will have a bit of a moment and come out. But I also think we do have to be alert to not talking it up and not overstating it. I mean, there was a thing on Twitter doing the rounds, which is a picture of five fascists in Newcastle holding a banner up outside a metro at the weekend. Let me tell you, as somebody who lived in Newcastle, those five fascists have been standing outside that metro for bloody years, right? And every year, it's true, every week they stand there. I can tell you personally that they've both beaten me up and I've beaten a few of them up, right? They are the same ones. And they obviously felt better on the weekend. That is true. I don't doubt it. But it would be wrong to suggest that we have had an outbreak of fascism in the country. And I think that we have to be careful that when the Polish club gets some people writing the graffiti on, that one, that we don't diminish the fact that that is backward, uh, uh, horrible behaviour, but also that we note that the Polish club has been inundated with hundreds of thousands of people visiting them well, wishing them well. So can we get the balance right on that? But one of the things that, just on the post-factual thing that's taken off, is that everyone is wearing a safety pin on the tube. So there's a new campaign that's been launched today, which is that you wear a safety pin to show that somebody can sit next to you because you're safe. This... <laughs> Don't laugh. Right. And this is a... This is a this is not virtue signalling, let me tell you. It's not post-factual. It's, it's a serious matter. But anyway, I, I really seriously want to say this, right? I do not want men walking around wearing T-shirts saying I am not a rapist any more than I. I find it insulting, the idea that I have to wear a bloody safety pin to declare that I'm not a, a racist scumbag. Because the implication is, is that most of us are. And unless you've got your safety pin in on, that you can't be trusted and I think that what we should be saying is, is that there is a small minority of racists and we will deal with them. No excuses, we will deal with them. But the majority of people in this country are decent people and are not on the verge of a racist pogrom. Racial thinking, however, seems to be alive and well. Racial thinking is that approach which is an elitist approach that thinks that one's fellow human beings, in, historically 
races uh, were subhuman and should be treated as such. I think that actually there's probably less of that in relation to ethnic minorities, but it's certainly alive and well in relation to another brand of subhuman people, that is Brexit people from the white working class or from the working class. So Noel Gallagher has already declared that 99% of people are thick as pig shit. Terry Christian has said that the the retards have totally fucked our country. Uh, A a think tanker of some renown said Britain's IQ is considerably lower than previously acknowledged. There's a kind of racial thinking that haunts this. A very serious neuroscientist of some renown actually said that the Brexit vote had launched a xenophobic, hateful attack. He, uh, 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 sorry, had launched a xenophobic, hateful atmosphere. He then went on to launch what can only be described as a rather xenophobic and hateful attack on the Welsh. What I particularly annoyed him... I say this because I'm from Wales, but what particularly annoyed him was he said that Wales has benefited enormously from EU funding. He then went on to say, so what's wrong with them? And compared them to Turkey's voting for Christmas because they just, or maybe they just didn't give a shit and thought, hey, this oven looks like a change of scene and that must be good. So it's all right, is it, to talk about the Welsh in that way? And so I could go on and on and I won't go on and on. You will know that a lot of the, uh, 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 that kind of, elitist thinking and treating people as though they're less than subhuman has been aimed at older people. And I just wanted to point out that although I've just written a book on Generation Snowflake, the worst culprits of this are the older people acting on behalf of the younger people. So we've got Gary Lineker who says he feels ashamed of my... You think he's feel ashamed by the football team? I'm ashamed of... (laughs) I'm ashamed of my generation. We've let down our children and their children. James Corden, I'm so sorry to the younger Britain. I fear that you've been let down today. Um, uh, Giles Curran, uh, Curran obviously uh, thinks that we're uh, uh, wrinkly bastards. Um, uh, so he doesn't make any uh, uh, apologies. But one, one person I just wanted to kind of cite to you before finishing off is uh, Shiv uh, Malik. He wrote a book called Jilted Generation. He writes to The Guardian. He wrote Jilted Generation when he's a bit younger. He's 35 now, so he should know better. But anyway, he said in a tweet yesterday, on behalf, uh, half of me wants to tell young people to abandon England, a country that clearly hates them. And I think that this is inciting the young to see this country. So it's what Frank said about, uh, uh, you know, that somehow you can associate yourself with the young in some way. He then went on to say that he didn't hate old people. He just said that he believes that old people really despise the young. So this is somebody who's telling the young that they are hated and despised by those people who are adults, who, for example, are teachers, carers, parents, and so on. But it obviously and undoubtedly creates a sense of saying to the young that you are victims of this uh, old regime. I mean, old means over 25, um, but I'm just uh, uh, making that point. Now, the final point I'd like to make, though, is, is that it is true that a lot of young people that I've met, despite the fact that I, I was going to read you out lots of horrible things that they said about uh, not winning the vote and, and, and wishing that uh, old people would die and saying why, they, why should they have as long uh, as the same vote as everyone else because they've got a lot less years to live with the consequences. And you do think... God. But um, however, however, more importantly, I actually want to seriously say, and this is a real challenge for us, many young people, even if they didn't vote remain, because we know they didn't vote in droves, do have a sense of utter terror at what's happening. And I don't think we should underestimate how scared people feel 
I'm not completely immune to being scared myself, by the way. It's not like I'm sitting there going, oh, everything's good. It, you know, you look and you think no one's running the country. It's God. What's happening, right? But I think that for young people in particular, this is an incredibly important time for them because there is a sense of despondency and anger. I mean, one 18-year-old wrote in the Times Educational Supplement, an A-level student, he said, my generation will never get its moment in the sun. And whilst you can say that's very passive and they're seeing themselves as being done to and so on, I also think there's a real sense that people can feel like it's all over for us, like we've been sold out by you lot and what are we going to do? And rather than me as a kind of middle-aged woman grumbling about the young, I think we've got to understand that if you're uh, somebody who has got the possibility of making some change in society, you can feel thwarted and confused and disorientated by what's happening. And I think that that's reasonable because, let's be honest, change doesn't often happen. And I'll tell you something. What's happened is something meaningful. You can tell because it's not the same today as it was a few days ago. Something big happened. People actually defied the bullies and the threats, the whole of the establishment telling them what to do and did something different. And, of course, the people who were running society weren't expecting that, so they're not prepared and they're trying to get out of it, and we know that. But it also gives you a sense of what it means for change to happen, for real change to move people, because nothing has ever happened historically. You can imagine, right, uh, abolish slavery, but we don't want anything to happen to the economy. We want everyone to carry on as before. Let's, you know, right, every time anything big happens, it's disruptive. And people keep saying they're like disruptive. You know, isn't that a big thing these days? Disruptive technology. We're all meant to be disruptors. And then suddenly there's a bit of disruption and everyone's like terrorised, right? This is what disruption, this is what it means to have democracy, to make change. And it requires of all of us that we grow up, that we're all serious, that neither should we caricature those people who voted remain. Neither should we be glib about the fact we won a referendum. This is not a paper exercise. This is about us having a chance to shape the future. I'm not even sure that we're up to the task, but I'm bloody well going to have a try. Hope you'll join me. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Claire. Um, so without further ado, let's go out to the audience for questions, contributions, points. I wanted to ask you, Frank, about um, what you thought about an argument that's being made that the voter should be thought of as a consumer. The idea that um, the voter needs to be thought of that way because there is insufficient accountability um, on the part of politicians um, who have missold their goods... Um, and that we need to hold them to account now through some kind of consumer action. Um, it's an argument I'm sure other people will have come across. It's being made by, obviously, people who don't like Brexit, um, the idea that we were sold a pack of lies. But the only reason why I'm raising it... Well, it's really to ask whether you think it's just an off-the-cuff way of coming back at Brexit, um, or whether this has got anything more to it in terms of... Um, the way we are now thought of or the way voting is thought of or the way the citizen is thought of and in particular this component of the argument which does raise the issue of, of accountability in its own way. Uh, Claire, I just wondered what you think about this because uh, my, my experience, unless my experience is unique, when I've been talking about um, uh, this referendum, I've got a few mates who are fairly kind of um, 
kind of uh, working class knuckle draggers who have uh, seen this as a, an opportunity to vote against uh, immigration. And that, you know, for them, that's been the, uh, you know, the, the only issue uh, of, of note in all this referendum. I've got a, another guy who was a fairly liberally escaped Germany in the Second World War to come to more enlightened climes. And when he found out that I'd voted leave, uh, he, he actually said to me, how can you vote for these xenophobes? You know, which I found uh, kind of interesting. What's even more interesting is that I've, I've uh, discussed with him uh, immigration, and he's really pro-immigration, pro but uh, he don't want the Turks to come in uh, <laughs> because they, you know, they've not got a very nice attitude towards women. Another guy, uh, oh, 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 when I was gloating about democracy, he said, Roy, this is not democracy. This is right-wing extremism. And it, unless, my, uh, unless my experience is uh, unique... It seems to me that it's all been about uh, immigration. And that's, uh, you know, I don't want to be negative about it, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you've had some different experience. But I just wonder what your thoughts were on that. Hello. I wondered if we could have a very quick uh, look at the London effect, because this is probably the first time in my life that I have managed to vote and be in the majority. That was the good, that was the good news. The bad news is that I live in Lambeth. So yet again, I find myself in a minority. Um, and that makes me feel very strange indeed. And I just, it just made me think really about how normally, when you're thinking about progressive ideas, when you're thinking about the future, when you're thinking about people who will overthrow the current system, you look to the cities, don't you? You look to the people who live in the big areas, who've, got, who've you know, left behind their families and they've moved on to live in places where they look to the future. And yet, London is one of the big anomalies when it comes to this particular referendum. And I thought it might be worth just thinking a bit longer about why that is, because um, I do feel when I'm talking about uh, the referendum that there are almost two different stories. One story is the story of democracy and the, the, the need for it and the need for, you know... Um, making our politicians accountable and, and having some independence um, and, and, and uh, power. And the other story is the story of wanting to reach out to the world and not be insular, and that all those ideas are very strongly associated not with, not with leaving but with remaining. And the remain arguments have obviously been very, very successful amongst the metropolitan elite, and those are the people we need to convince. And so where did we go wrong? Frank, I'm delighted that um, so much of your speech was given over to the issue of migration because I think far too many of us have been far too slow to recognise the importance of this issue. Um, but I think it's clear from your speech, and I hope people really take it on board, that, that you do appreciate how important this issue is. And I say we've been slow because this has really been a central issue ever since Maastricht. Um, and the EU's desire to try and well, to do two things, really. First of all, to knock down national borders so that we can do away with national accountability. And then, moreover, the Euro elite had to find some way of connecting with a strata of the European population. And what they, maybe not without understanding it, what they hit upon was the idea of open borders and the idea that they could promote cosmopolitanism um, as a means of having a connection with a fairly narrow strata of people in society. And you can see how this has played out in the referendum. It clearly plays out well with more middle-class people. 
It plays out really well in the academy. Um, it, it, it plays out much better with young people. Um, but all it's actually done is connected with a fairly narrow strata of society, and it has alienated and made huge swathes of the population really angry about the way um, that open borders has been promoted. And it's got nothing at all to do with the positive aspiration behind free movement. So it is positively regressive, and, and we have to recognise that. We have to connect with the way this issue is being used now. M my only question for you, though, Frank, is that if, as I think you're saying, that the nation-state needs to have a strong sense of the first-person plural, namely the we, then what actually does that mean for politics? Thanks. Uh, it's on the same issue, migration. Um, obviously, I think the first priority is to defend the referendum result. You know, uh, the majority voted to leave the EU. They meant it. Um, and I, I've been wondering if there's anything that can and should be done with the issue of, of migration. I uh, came here with some policy questions in my head or some campaigning questions, you know, whether it's incumbent upon us either individually or collectively, whatever that might mean, to develop or settle on positions uh, on some aspects of migration, what it might mean, what the word campaigning might mean in light of this democratic moment. The things I had in mind were, for example, um, you know, demanding that existing residents in this country uh, give assurances that they can stay and that they can be given citizenship expeditiously. I've also been wondering about the very technical questions, perhaps too technical, of the, um, of the you know, EEA, EFTA membership and so on, and, and the implications of that, because I've, I've heard some very confusing and very compelling arguments on both sides of that. But in light of what Frank has said, it's, it's very interesting. Um, you know, if, if immigration has been used to establish a, a, a value system, promulgating um, an abstract sense of cosmopolitanism, um, can we do anything with it, or can we, or should we campaign about it? Is there a way to do it without effectively sort of weaponizing one's own compassion or trying to sort of project one's own compassion and effectively chastise other people for lacking it? And that's, I, I admit, I'm wrestling with that at the moment. I want to take one more, and I want to take a younger person. Because okay. <laughs> the average age, over here, just please. <laughs> no offence. Hello. Hi. Okay, well, I'm glad I look young. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm 23, and I think what is really interesting about this vote is that all along my social media, it's been a lot of, as you can imagine, um, like morally driven, you know, we stand with immigration um, posts. And I think one of the problems that I've found is that there hasn't really been like, an, like a legitimate voice um, for... Brexit that hasn't re that hasn't come from you know the Farages or you know the the right wing polit politicians essentially, and so it feels like young people don't really have someone to look up to and someone to follow, and there's no leader there for people who think actually I do some of the ideas and the reasons for Brexit do resonate with me, but I don't really have enough confidence in my own opinion to really go off on my own and trudge my own, like, trust my own judgment. So I'm going to go with what my peers say. And I, was, I guess my question is, is that how do we legitimise the fact that 17 million people voted for, a re for legitimate reasons? And how do we give some sort of leadership to a potential movement that's going to drive the Brexit campaign actually happening um, when there's such a leadership vacuum 
at the moment as to regards to the political parties. Because young people do care, I think. Um, but I think there's this feeling of something not being quite right. And, you know, we've be grown up in a society where it's almost always been like this. Um, so, yeah, that's my question. So, lots to pick up on there. I'm going to ask you to be as brief as you can so we can go back for other rounds of questions. But, Frank, if you want to respond to anything you've heard, particularly this point about how do we um, winnow the people who did for better or for worse just associate leave with um, xenophobia, with this kind of slightly negative sort of message. So, Well, uh, it is a very uh, interesting question. It's a very important question because I completely agree with you that in the absence of any dynamic leadership on the, uh, on the leave side, uh, people could really inspire and capture the imagination, not just of young people, even of old people, by ideals that were broader than the way that was presented. Um, it, it, it meant that the discussion only had a limited capacity to transcend the present moment. It did transcend the present moment, which is positive, but it didn't do that. Yeah. If it's for me, I'm not here. I'm just... <laughs> um, it, it seems to me that um, you always answered your own question because, uh, in a sense, you know, what you're really saying is that there's no point in looking for already existing leaders who are conspicuously feeble and are not really going on the right track. I think this is the moment when we've got to take matters into our own hands. And I think particularly those of us that are, 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 you know, are, are still look young, if they are, even if they're not, <laughs> uh, you know, have got a kind of a responsibility, especially you know, people who are in their late teens, their early 20s. I think it's, it's their moment to give a bit of a lead and to demonstrate that uh, being young does not mean that you, you kind of wait for the elders to give you direction, that you don't wait for paternalistic solutions, but you know, people can make change you know, sort of by, by, by getting together, by, by organizing, and indicating that actually young people have far more to gain with, genuine, with living genuine democracy than anybody else does because they are far longer to live. It's almost like turning the question around the other way that you, know, we, you don't want to spend you know, your old age living in a, in a kind of institutionalized, paternalistic, bureaucratic environment. So I'm actually, I think that we all have got to go out and, and, and turn young people onto the idea that Brexit is genuinely radical and is, is the most radical thing that has happened to British society uh, since the general strike of 1926, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> certainly a, ve certainly a, ve a very, very long time. Okay, let's turn on the London effect. The London effect, um, I would explain as, as, as very simply due to the fact that, that London is very different in all respects to the rest of the country in that it is the one that is most exposed to the kind of value systems that I've been describing. It's, it's also the part of the country where... Uh, the traditional organic relationships between communities in the past and the communities in the present have eroded the most, where there is very little linkage between the legacy of the past and the people. I mean, Lambeth is a very good example, but virtually everywhere. In fact, the only place in London where there was any significant vote for, uh, for Brexit was, I think, Dagenham and Barking and these kinds of places, which, uh, which some bit, small bits of it, which have remained relatively stable um, and I think that you know, there is a sense in which communities that are continually in, in upheaval, that kind of move in and out, are also the ones that are 
most susceptible to, to kind of absorbing and internalizing these kinds of sentiments. I think it's in London that the, you know, the, the media has the most impact where you know, all the, you know, the, the youth culture, as it is not constituted, is most influential. And if you look at the way that young, uh, well, kind of bands and, and celebrities and everybody else was uh, recruited and mobilized to promote that campaign. So I think in that sense, London is understandable, uh, which is an argument for taking London a little bit more seriously and not allowing London to be almost like in the pocket of, of, of this group of individuals because potentially London should be the most happening place, the most exciting place. And I think we have to appeal to the fact that there are a lot of people who wanna make things happen and, and just gotta get them to understand that uh, it's in their hands to take responsibility for that. So I do think that London is, is really important. Just one, one very small point on voting. Uh, the consumer argument is fundamentally flawed because the democratic ideal of voting is very simple, is that you vote and you take responsibility for your action. A voting isn't you know, like for, just for Christmas, right? <laughs> you know, when you vote, it has got consequences and you're gonna live with it. And if you made a wrong choice, you're still gonna live with it. And that goes very much against the whole idea of consumerism, which the kind of ideas that have been peddled to undercut that. Thank you, Frank. And uh, Claire, is there anything you want to come back on? Uh, a couple of things. Um, I, I think that, you know, one, one question directly addressed to me was that, you know, a n- number of people, somebody asked a question and said, a number of people I knew, a lot of the people I knew, actually, immigration, or there was a certain xenophobia in the vote. And I, I don't want to romanticise all of the reasons why all of the people voted, but on either side, you know, that it, it's not as though, because what sometimes happens in discussion is people sort of say, there's lots of xenophobes voted in the 17.5 million, and they didn't know what, they were either duped or they were xenophobic, there's all these things going on, and then it's like as though all the other people who voted remain were each and every individual, one of them, thought through, you know, had not been duped by anything, right? All sorts of things happen to all sorts of people in that vote, and there will be a, a, a mixture of reasons. Anyway, you know, that's democracy for you. People get to vote, and they can vote on whatever basis they want. And I am not prepared, as it were, to say, because some people voted for reasons I disagreed with, but for a side which I did agree with, that I'm then going to denounce the side that I agreed with, which is almost like where we end up going. So there will be people who did that. Um, but I, but I, I, but I don't want in any way to. I don't want to whitewash or, or romanticise it overly. But what I do think in relation to the there aren't any leaders to go with. Because one of the things that was said to me constantly in the build-up to the referendum was, Claire, how can you possibly vote on a side with Farage on it or with uh, Boris Johnson? And I said, well, I don't know how you can possibly vote on a side with the banks, the corporates, the generals, the whole of the establishment, David Cameron, and all the rest of it, right? Yeah, yeah. But it was cheap, wasn't it? I mean, you know, in the end. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, the reason I'm saying that is because ultimately though, as well, it is tricky because you are trying to work out what to do and nobody wants to be seen, you know, you're trying to work it out. But that's what, for me, is the moment, right? If Remain had won, it would be back in your box, everyone. That's over, status quo restored. Do you know what I mean? We asked you to vote, You, you did what we told you. It's all over, go home. Right, now what's happened is, is that even people who voted Remain who were really upset genuinely and worried, right? Now everything's different, right? Scarily, I know, sometimes. But therefore, I do think genuinely, and this is not to patronise the young, 
Um, but to actually say that everybody in this room, but those people who were younger might as well go for it because, you know, you've got a bit more energy. Um, this, is an, this is an opportunity really genuinely to take advantage of the fact that there is a bit of a gap and that we should, you know, get in there. And if people are not sure about what to do or what all of these things mean, I mean, you know, we're all going to have to read more books, talk to each other, have more meetings, all the rest of it. But it's definitely not something like... I'm going to wait for anyone to come along, because that's definitely not happening. On both sides, uh, there's no one there. Um, uh, the London effect, the only thing was, I love that Suzanne Moore article uh, in The Guardian, where she basically said, in relation to the declaration uh, uh, by the mayor of London as a, you know, as a city-state, she said, oh, London, get over yourself, check your privilege, which was the only time that I enjoyed the use of that term. Um, but, I, but, I, but the only thing I would say is, is that there is two different things. I mean, one is, is that it is incredible to, that, that London thinks it can seal itself off, like a safe space, like at a university, where you kind of never have to see all those horrible people out there in the north and, and so on. But on the other hand, I also don't want to kind of play that London is dynamic and wealthier, and it doesn't need to feel guilty do you know what I mean? Because the, the other danger is, is that we all go around saying, yes, there's lots of poor people in the north, and that's why they voted that way. And I don't think it's as simple as that, because that's what a lot of kind of lefties are now saying. Oh, yeah, they were left behind, and they're all kind of, they've got no prospects. Because that is a different kind of condescending paternalism. I, I think that robs people of agency just as much as anything else. So what I would say is, is that people in, we've got to take advantage of the dynamic in London to have the kind of debates that will affect uh, the rest of the country, regardless of whether people were Brexit or Remain. But it doesn't mean that the debates aren't as... Uh, they're going to happen here more than anywhere else, let's be honest, and don't let's be embarrassed by that. Thank you very much. So we're going to go back out again, so hands high. Uh, one of the things that uh, most disappointed me about the whole thing was that nobody on either side, either side of the channel or either side of the debate, had any plan for what would happen if there was a vote to leave. And it seems to me, like as people mentioned before, there's a vacuum. There is a vacuum now. You know, the Tory leader, is, Cameron, is, is still there, but not quite there. Um, you know, Labour Party's in disarray and, and whatever. It seems to me that one way that we could engage with people, we could fill the vacuum, is to try and come up with some sort of proposal that, like a manifesto for change, if you like, where... You know, the politicians have failed in their duty every way you can imagine in this whole debate. So maybe it's time that we stood up and did their job for them, or their job for us. Hi. Um, if it did go the other way, and I think this is awesome, this is the hypothetical we get to play with, but if it did, the, the tabloid press, they, they were already warming up the stories. They were getting ready to say that the Brussels machine had won, the... the, the um, propaganda machine had won, that they, they duped us all, they paid off the charities, the George Soroses had been funding it all behind it, the forces of globalisation had duped us all, they tricked us all. And, and we in the tabloid press, would have that's the line we were preparing. The whole country had been duped. And, um, I mean, I, I know why that was different, personally. I, there's, for me, there's a big difference between the free press and the bureaucracy that's spending my taxes on converting me. But why would you say, what's the difference there? And, and why is the tabloid press, why is this an expression of freedom of three, four? And why might some, a lot of people in this room criticise us if we were duped by 
the, the Brussels machine, because I had so many people in the Leave campaign the next morning saying, we beat the machine, we beat the machine. What if the machine won? All right, I voted Remain. I don't believe in any of them, and I actually think the corporates are on both sides of this debate, not on one side. I think for Leave and Remain, unless we can somehow define, I would love to hear Corbyn, I joined the Labour Party to support him, because I was too ultra-left to ever do it before. Um, but I would like to hear Corbyn say that the corporates are above us all, above all governments and all party leaders, and above leave and remain, because it's difficult. It's not at all easy. But I would like to say I think the issue of we is very, very interesting. I would argue that the word we has been used to destroy power and class. And so who we define as we, rather than never defining anybody as we, and them is really quite important because I would define the corporates as them. I would also define Boris as them and definitely Farage as them and Cameron and all the people who are claiming to lead us in different directions. And so I don't think it's at all easy to dispose of the word we. I think it's being used in a completely vicious way. Listen to Will Self, the great intellectual, gurgling on about we this and we that and things we, we can do nothing about. We, we, we. I think we should rethink the notion of we and begin to use it properly. Thanks. I mean, just looking at the last 20 years and the, the development of, you know, young people in our society and the way that, you know, a 20-year-old has gone through the last kind of, you know, the socialisation process, you would have to conclude that there's never been a more kind of self-centered, egotistical kind of generation of people that probably ever existed. Uh, in, our, in our universities, you know, they're busy kind of saying, you know, let's, let's have an end to free speech and, uh, and many other kind of what you might call reactionary ideas. I'm, I'm sure not everybody's like that, but it's hard to sort of... Uh, it's hard to really kind of, you know, as an older person, be really have any great admiration for anything that appears political from young people today. So in a sense, you know, uh, while I'm all in favour of, you know, sort of trying to win people over, I think you have to, if you're going to be treated with any respect and dignity, say it like it is uh, to them and say, you know, you're wrong in many respects. And, you know, that's why I think, you know, this issue particularly is a chance to do that, uh, to take up many of the issues. On a completely different uh, issue... Given what has been said about politics in this country, what has happened in the last 30 or 40 years where ideology has dissipated and gone and politicians are not premised upon any ideological background or indeed any principle, what has stepped in, in my opinion, to fill the gap, if you like, is the media. I think it's very, very important, in, and, I, and I won't regale you with all the kind of stories of what the media said in the Brexit debate, but by and large you could say they were remain. And, uh, you know, the kind of what they subscribe to and what they seem to be the most uh, capable uh, sort of section of society in promoting the ideas that Frank has articulated about how, you know, cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism and, uh, and a kind of new morality, if you like, is most profoundly pushed by them. And they're the biggest problem maybe we face. Thank you. Well, um, Frank said that the politicians will now have to account for themselves in the language of politics, and I hope that's true, and I think we 
the people in this room and elsewhere have a responsibility to make them do that. Although I do find that when I was talking politically about things, people say, well, that's fine, Alan, we know you like the political thing, but the majority of all those other people, they're not really talking politics. And not just that they're stupid, but almost like they're, um, there's a lifestyle cultural thing. That they're somehow they're the big they are the bigots, but they're culturally different. And the question I think we've got to address is how we resuscitate the notion of we. Muhammad Ali in that lovely film When We Were Kings, we all know the story, the shortest poem in the English language, me, we. The kind of fluid relationship about what you mean to the we and the general and how we can be I think we need to get in the front of this. I think we need to be pro-people. We have to be pro-international, pro-European. We have to expect the best of young people and old people and not be put down by all this negativity out there and show that there is a dynamism for people who want to see the world better, that it isn't acceptable to overturn the democratic right of the people and that we are going to hold the line and move forward with it. And that's the sense in which I think we should move forward. Hi, I put my hand up after that gentleman over there called um, Young People Egotistical. Um, I kind of disagree to what he said, but it leads into a question that I have as well. Um, I don't think that young people are the most egotistical and... What was the other thing he said? Um, narcissistic, that was it. Uh, well, possibly. Social media has helped that. But um, I think that we've... In our education system... We've been promoted to think with our feelings rather than with facts and information. And there's been a lack of kind of training in critical thought and debate. And I can see that within people younger than me because I'm not as young as you might think. Um, And um, so I disagree with what he's saying, but I wanted to add to it in the sense that uh, how can we utilise what's been happening recently to encourage people to become more robust and not as snowflakey as the lady who was speaking earlier said. Um, before I start, uh, trigger warning, Elrika Dejerman, because I know I do trigger people with what I say. But something that's not been touched about um, in both camps was the idea of British identity. And even though I voted Brexit, it's quite disappointing that people aren't proud of being British. It seems to be a racist thing to be proud of the country that you... Uh, a living. So I, I, what can we do to sort of unite both the young, both the old, um, people from all different backgrounds, to be proud of being British, because that's been completely erased from both campaigns. And I think that instead of all the divisiveness that comes between, uh, between different groups, why can't we just unite under one umbrella that is, we are in Britain, we should be proud of being British. British. Well, frankly, it would be nice if people actually respected the idea of... Let's come back to the um, panel very quickly. So, a lot there, Frank. What do you want to come back on? Yeah. yeah. Uh, a lot of questions. By the way, I'm not as young as I look, so I guess you... <laughs> um, on the question of young people, I think you're, you're totally wrong on that. You know, I think that insofar as there are any problems with the young, it's are making. It's the adult world that has socialized them into adopting uh, very strong therapeutic values. We, instead of socializing them into being British, as you would put it, or instead of socializing them into the legacy of the past, we use techniques of validation to bring them closer to each other. So schools, all they do is just validate people all the time, and they continue that in universities. 
So it's not particularly surprising that young people therefore lose, lose a sense of agency that are, is normally associated with the youth, that sense of transformative capacity. Not all of them, because thankfully there's quite a lot that, that are still idealistic and still want to make things happen. I just want to say there's no point campaigning or doing anything unless we get the young involved. I mean, it's as simple as that. You don't make change, you know, with old-age pensioners. I mean, you know, I, I fully respect old-age pensioners, but they're not exactly the vanguard of, 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 of movement. They have a very important role to play, and we don't want to fall into this reverse pattern of, of making a molar polarization between the young and the old the way it's been done, because everybody has got their place in it. But I think that the future lies in the, in the hands of the young. And one of the things that, one of the best places that we could be directing our energies into is actually, you know, sort of uh, school kids, you know, sort of 16 and above. The, you know, when you get to that point where you begin to get idealistic, you're doing your GCSEs, you're going on to your A-levels, perfect age to, put, to kind of provide them with an alternative view of the world to what they're getting from their teachers and from the school, where they're getting the touchy-feely PHSE crap, you know, sort of all, all of the time. But I, I do think that it's very important that we don't fall into the trap of, of at all pathologizing young people. I think we've got to go out of our way to find what's positive about their experiences and really do everything to encourage their active side. I think that's part and parcel of what we're saying here. And I, hopefully that some of, some of you guys who are not just, not, not just look young, but actually are young, uh, are going to stay behind a little bit and perhaps you can all exchange emails, addresses, maybe go out for a drink with each other and work out ways of, of making a few things happen. Thank you very much, Frank. And um, Claire, what do you want to come back on? Less the um, generational gap thing, because I feel yeah. like every contribution so far has been prefaced with how old or young you may be or may not be. So yeah. um, what about this point about, shouldn't we, particularly on with Remain, as, as, well, as much as that we want to be um, conciliatory in so many ways, aren't there some dodgy ideas we have to pull people up on? Yeah, I mean... I. I said don't caricature Remainers. I didn't say that we shouldn't argue politics. I mean, my point in the build-up to the referendum was that people argued politics and we should carry on arguing politics. Not, you know, Now is a time where we need to carry on discussing all of this stuff. But the point I'm saying is, is that at some point you might not wander around going, are you Brexit or Remain? But actually, now we've got to go and work out what we're going to do and, and discuss in those terms. I thought that there was an interesting question about the media at the battle. Somebody who asked the question, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that if Remain had won, that the Brexit people would have said that, yes, that we were duped, that people were duped and all the rest of it, because that's a kind of stand-back position of contempt for people, right? I, it's no better coming from one camp or the other. I, I appreciate that. But, one, and, you know, there was sort of some very in, irritating bits on the Leave camp, the official kind of Leave camp, that would say things like, um, uh, you know, a low turnout would suit us. I mean, what? No, they should, we should have been fighting for a large turnout and to persuade people. But equally galling was this idea from the Leave side, which is we've got to increase the... Uh, we've got to mobilise the young people because that'll increase the Remain vote. So what therefore happened to us is that people saw people as passive people, camps to be mobilised rather than to be persuaded. So what I'm suggesting is, is that we should approach politics, not in terms of what camp you're in, but actually as uh, persuading them. And, uh, you know, the fact that the media is cynical one way or another is neither in nor there or hardly revelation. Um, just on the generational question, there's a really good new book out um, on, on, uh, on Generation Snowflake called uh, I Find That Offensive by Me. And um, uh, uh, it's on this very matter... 
Um, but the, the reason I've mentioned it is not just that you should buy it and read it um, and then argue with me, but because um, one of the things uh, that's, very, that's very important is, I, I, you know, the young are self-evidently the future, but the young are not self-evidently interesting because they're young. The young have to become interesting, and they can't passively assume that as the young they can assume anything, assume the mantle of leadership in any way. However, it is absolutely the case that in order for uh, those young uh, people who ha are see themselves as having some role to play in, in shaping things, that now is the time to do it. That's what I'd say. So I wouldn't want to over-flatter. I think that people have to intellectually confront that the trends that are generational at the moment and the, the best people to confront those backward trends of thin-skinnedness and generation snowflake in that generation are that generation. Those of us who've socialised the young into that have to take responsibility for what we've done, but it's not a quite... A, you know, but that's, that's a completely different matter. Just in terms of this bit, we also need to get over this bit. We need to have an intergenerational attempt at sorting things out as well, so that we're also not kind of going, what camp are you on age way? I can just see in the pub now, there's going to be all these people kind of rather embarrassedly saying, well, I'm 40, does I, do I count 30? Right, I completely agree that the younger, you can't build a movement without the young, but I, I'm absolutely not moving out the way because someone's young, right? What I, what I suggest we do is take ourselves and each other seriously intellectually in terms of dealing with the moment that we face. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Right, we're going to go out possibly for the final time. So stick your hands up, keep your questions short. Um, I think there's two things that are really clear. One is that we've got to, whether you voted remain or leave, is to defend democracy and to push the leadership who seem to have buggered off um, David Cameron couldn't resign quicker, really, could he? And uh, he called the election, oh, the referendum, he called it, and, um, and then he got a different response to it than what he was expecting, and he didn't want to take responsibility for what that meant. And I think we've got a responsibility to hold him to account and the rest of the political class for that, and one way of unifying people is to ask people to understand what democracy is, because as Frank and Claire and lots of people have said, that is being called into question and is under attack. And I also think that we need to work out a way of organising and coming together to do that. It's not just good enough to go up the pub and exchange emails, and I know a lot of us do that anyway, but I think there might need to be something more than just a pressure group, but a proper movement to ensure the triggering of Article 50 and then working out a way of what we want to do with that. Uh, should we move beyond uh, leave and remain? Obviously, quite a lot of the remain camp, uh, I think, have also been appalled uh, by the uh, anti-democratic, uh, you know, vituperative, uh, elitist uh, uh, stuff that's come out of uh, come out of uh, some of the remain, uh, some of the remain side. So, should it be, you know, Democrats versus anti-democrats? Should we move consciously in that? Uh, in that direction. People who support democracy and obviously people who uh, believe that, uh, that uh, uh, large sections of society are incapable of, uh, you know, uh, are incapable of uh, uh, operating in a democracy. On immigration, I think 
uh, I'd agree we need a grown-up discussion about it. Immigration is a sovereign power, um, which obviously should be under uh, popular control as well. And obviously people have suffered under the uh, yoke of being uh, accused of racism to prevent them from discussing it up until this point in time. Uh, and, and again, that silencing of people, getting them putting, uh, being, yeah, having people being put back in their box on the immigration issue uh, is something which we should oppose to and have a grown-up conversation about it and promote a grown-up conversation about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the generational argument is funny because you, you wouldn't think when you were talking about this kind of vote that the you know, European Union was the institution that played a massive, decisive role in the decimation of young and old society in Greece, um, that this is not a kind of benign institution that people um, can't understand, that it has actually had you know, quite a significant political role in things. And I kind of, I'm a bit fascinated by people trying to explain this in terms of the Trump effect. And it sort of seems to me that actually the kind of, you know, it, it is a bit like the Trump effect in as much as it's a, it's a great symbol of how the elites can't control what's, what's going on, that there's a kind of juggernaut kind of effect. But I think there's also a risk of overplaying that a little bit and to actually deny that there's some sense of political history or narrative to this, that actually, you know, that an awful lot of the old people who voted to leave the European Union actually were young enough to have voted to to enter Europe in the first place. What happens is they've grown disillusioned with a, a great political project which refuses votes time and time again. People have actually kind of come to an understanding to some degree. I don't think we can necessarily overclaim that and say that's the entire reason for the vote. But there's also a risk of just sort of in celebrating the seismic nature of it, um, lose sight of that. And I think what's kind of most striking that I found in my sort of generation's response is actually probably the first time any world-shaking events that's happened that's brought about change that hasn't been a terrorist attack. People have talked about this as if it's been a sort of terrorist attack. Where we're hunting for the fanatics who did it. We're talking about suspending, you know, the kind of processes of liberal democracy so that we can sort it all out. And above all else, we're trying to warn the great British public not to explode into anger and to start attacking people racially, which has been the claim for you know years and years and years, and never actually turns out to be the case. So it's just worth bearing that in mind. In this, well, I think it's been very interesting debate so far. And I've listened to everybody, but what's worrying me is that I think this is only a narrow time we've got, and this time will pass, and we've got an opportunity now, and if we don't take it and start to take control, um, we're going to lose it. And the, the lady over there was the first person who mentioned Article 50. I think the first thing we have to do, foremost, is to press for Article 50, and I want to know how people here... I want to know how people here, because I think all of us, remain or leave, are Democrats in this room, are going to push that forward. What, what are we going to actually do, practically? Are we going to organise a demonstration ourselves? I know we can all talk to our friends on social media and, and in, everywhere, but we need to organise together as well as a movement. Um, on the, lots of people seem to be um, pushing for the kind of how, the practicality, the, the you know, reality of a, a next step. And I mean, I completely agree with triggering Article 50 uh, as soon as possible. Um, but I think really how you define the we, what we must do, um, is try and give a sense of the possibility of the moment that is in front of us. The, the main reason why whether you are remain uh, two weeks ago uh, or leave, that it doesn't matter now what side you're on and there's no point in campaigning for those things anymore, um, is because uh, no one thought the EU was perfect uh, and no one necessarily believed um, that the world outside the EU was necessarily doom, gloom and project fear. 
Um, so the space, the possibility opened up that's important not to be um, extinguished, I think, is that we now have the possibility to imagine the answers to societal questions that we wouldn't have came up with the same answers for two, three weeks ago. And it's not to say it's likely. It's not even to say um, that it will just happen. We have to make it happen. But the main point is those, um, that act of imagination is possible and we should try and do it together by arguing together a bit. Um, I really agree with the points made that we need to... This is, to me, a great opportunity that we need to seize. And I agree with you, Frank, in terms of the importance of London. And I've always thought London is important and the rest isn't important. Now that I live in Birmingham... <laughs> I, Claire, you're right that the, the section of the population that I've spent most time talking to about Brexit, because they're the only ones who agree with me are those who, who live in working-class areas in West Bromwich, in Coventry, um, in Birmingham. And they are the people that have been left behind. They are the people who have never had any interest in politics. Um, and it's all... I mean, it might sound a bit romantic, but this is how I see it. It's almost as if they are a head taller than themselves. I'd never discussed politics with them before. Suddenly they are interested in politics. Suddenly they have the confidence to start saying what they think about issues. And they talk about things like belonging. I, they don't talk to me about immigration, maybe because they know, you know where I come from. And, uh, but I think it has an impact in the sense that they see it as somehow undermining the influx of people, their sense of togetherness, which they feel that they're losing. But it's their bullshiness. I mean, I asked them, but what about the economic side? You know, their foster, par uh, foster parents and such like. And they're saying, we know it's going to be hard. We knew that. We didn't w walk into the voting booth with our eyes closed. We knew it was going to be hard. But, and it's scary, it's really scary, but change. We want change. And the lollipop man, when I was really dejected one day feeling really down in the dumps. I said, I, just, I think they're really going to might be able to stop this. And he said, no, they won't. I said, why do you think that? And he said, because we won't let them. And I just thought, we've got to do something and get these people involved in whatever the campaign is, whatever it is. I'm not saying London's not important. London's incredibly important, but we've got to go out to these areas as well. Yeah, me, we, and belonging. Um, I'm with the woman who spoke um, about the Remain camp and Article 50. I think there are people in Remain who will get the democratic principle about this, and we have got to fight and keep on fighting for Article 50. Because there's going to be... We're, we're going to... There will be technocratic moves, all the rest of it. We know what's going to happen. We have got to win it. I mean, we cannot not win it. I think we've heard about accountability as well. And I think we've got to take some accountability. The truth is, we voted leave. And we did vote with bigots. Not all of them. Not significant. Not defining. But, but that element is there. It's the risk and responsibility of it. Um, if you vote it remain, you've also got to take responsibility that you voted with bigots and the double, of, double whammy of voting for a bigoted, racist institution. We've got to take responsibility for the way 
we voted and the outcome, what happens next, the day after the revolution matters. Not that we've had one yet. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm interested in this question of belonging and immigration and, and we. And it's really got me thinking. Something happened to me, which is really bizarre in the last few days. I'm not a candidate for racial abuse, not an obvious one to look at me in this country. I was walking down the streets of Camden and a guy totally randomly came up to me and really aggressively started saying, where are you from then? And I was, I've been just puzzled by this ever since. But I don't think it's as easy to say as it's, that it's racist. I think there's something else going on here, which is almost an anti-we, and a belonging which is almost nihilistic and solipsistic out there as well, which could turn inwards. So we've got to, that sense of belonging, we've got to win back. That somebody said we should be winning over the elites in talking to the elites. I don't think we are. I'm with the life the last speaker, we need to be going out, making the argument about what proper we and belonging is. I think um, one of taking advantage of this um, incursion of mass democratic politics is immediately restoring the use of political concepts and the political language that has been so absent, such as um, popular sovereignty, such as accountability, in place of talking about culture and systems of meaning. Um, and linking to that, I think one of the things is specific attention to institutional details, such as whether we want to be in the, um, economic, the European economic area, attention to specific policies, such as triggering Article 50 and pushing for that, deciding what happens to um, EU citizens who've been working here for however many years. So linking to that, I think also one of the ways in which Brexit is going to be thwarted is by patronizing and pandering to anti-migrant sentiment. And in response to that, in terms of legitimating Brexit and defending what it means, means making an argument for open borders, and it means making an argument for freedom of movement as absolutely fundamental to human liberty. And that we can especially make that case now in the context of a democratic moment. Um, I think it's definitely important to talk about London and to look at what's happening in London, especially as yesterday, uh, I think tonight and throughout the weekend, there are significant numbers of people marching against Brexit and the majority of these people are young people. And actually, if you look at the placards that they're holding up, they've completely misunderstood the situation. They're saying, we've left Europe, uh, we've turned into a country of racists. They haven't actually, and the people that I've talked to who are my own age, who have suddenly become politicised by this referendum, um, have never really been involved or talked about politics before, have completely, have had, yes, an emotional response to this. But what's most interesting is that actually they're not people who are in significant numbers marching against Brexit, are not arguing for something different. They're literally arguing for a rewind of time. And what is most astonishing is these same people who in the last general election said, anyone but the Tories, you know, we absolutely hate all politicians, politicians are awful and Parliament's awful, and now they're completely lining up behind them and actually showing support for them. And there's something very wrong going on there that I'm afraid I agree with the person who said we have to call it as it is. We do have to call it as it is and use harsh words and say, you were wrong and, you know, there was a side that won the referendum. Thank you very much.
I, I find the discussion, uh, I hate using the word, but inspiring. You know, it was very, very interesting. I think that a number of points come out for me very, very strongly. Uh, three areas that I think that come out of this and we can sort of follow up on. I think there was a, a, an embryonically interesting exchange between uh, the, the young woman over there who's texting and the young woman over there in the back on the question of Britishness. Uh, because uh, one person says, what does it mean to be British? Or why don't we celebrate Britishness? And the other person came back, and you came back and says, well, you explained to me what, you know, what British really is. And I think that's a discussion that we need to have. You know, I mean, there's no point talking about belonging and everything else, or, or we's and all the rest of that. Because that's been the one, one question, uh, along with immigration, that has not been had in the last, you know, sort of 20 to 40 years. And I think that there are, you know, I'm not sure what the answer will be, because the answer cannot be second-guessed, since it's the result of a process of, of political debate and political clarification. But I think that's part and parcel of the whole way forward in, in the way that we kind of conceptualize you know, the kind of society that we are and the kind of public world that we want to create. I think that uh, uh, the first step that, that we, you know, we, can, we can begin to do is to actually, I mean, your idea of organizing a demonstration, great idea, I think we should do it. Uh, I think that you don't need tens of thousands of people to make a, a really big impact in a place like London, where we basically argue for a fight for democracy. Let's, you know, you know the people have decided, let's trigger this Article 50. I think that's really quite important. And, and, and the sooner we do it, the better. Uh, you know, some of us in this room have a bit of organizational track record. I, I, and I do think that you know, making sure that we, we, gain, we get publicity, but also telling the world that there is a, a positive, you know, sort of uh, democratic outlook on this question is really quite important, just as a first, first step, just to lay down the marker. And this, uh, this can be a campaign that we come back to, you know, week after week until something decisive is done. The, sec the third point that I think in the long run is, is, is the most important is this. We haven't had a chance to talk about some very important developments that have occurred in British politics, which is to do with the fact that the Labour Party is more or less unraveled. I mean, it's, it, it's done to the, to the northern base what happened in Scotland, and it has become a totally a zombie party where you know, sort of it, it's got a, a, a large membership in, in absolute terms, but not in terms of electoral significance. It's got a parliamentary wing that is made up of half-wits and simpletons. <laughs> You know, sort of, not, you know, not that the, the, the Conservative Party are, are, are geniuses and Einsteins, but it is, it is, it is a, 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 a tr an incredible development that, that has occurred. The Conservative Party is, 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 is pushing Labour Party out of the way. They won't be the first one to unravel. And, and if you look at the internal crisis that they have, it's is, is really also very, very interesting. British parliamentary politics, which has been the most stable parliamentary regime in Western Europe, uh, is now going under, and, and I do think that this is the time when, you, when it's worth thinking about, is it possible to do something in the domain of parliamentary politics? Is, is it possible to do something, <laughs> you know, whereby, whereby on the basis of, of what we've done so far and the campaigning that we're doing around these issues, we basically develop a set of principles 
that are relevant for our times and, and, and based on some very fundamental issues to do with, you know, sort of democracy, popular sovereignty, tolerance, or to, or to do with a, a kind of a, a positive future-oriented alternative based upon the, you know, the, the foundation that, and the legacy that we got from the Enlightenment and, and all the important, uh, important developments onward is not, not, not really on the agenda because if we don't do it, if people like ourselves, doesn't have to be we, but if people like ourselves don't do it, then it's fairly likely that we're going to have something like a, a Podemos equivalent from Spain, God forbid. You know, I'm, I'm an atheist, and I say God forbid. Or, 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 or something where, where the kind of UKIP spin-off phenomenon kind of steps into it, as it's happening everywhere in Europe. I mean, everywhere in Europe, these things are emerging. So given the fact that there are all these possibilities, you know, why not have a go? You know, I'm, you know, there's nothing to be lost. Thank you very much, Frank. And Claire, your funny thoughts. Um, a gentleman at the, uh, the, the, the back asked why nobody had a plan and why, you know, there was a kind of bereft. And I do think, you know, as we sum up this evening, it is worth remembering that the people who called this referendum and even the people who were opposed to it thought that it would be Remain. The Brexit camp, the Leave camp, thought they were going to lose, and the Remain camp thought they were going to win, and everybody sat there, and it was kind of... I, I don't mean that there weren't people passionate in the Leave camp who wanted to win, but there was a sense in which there was no plan because nothing was going to happen, and then something happened, and there's no plan. And the Cameron resignation, which was an act of great cowardice uh, 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 that, he, he, that he did, um, was, was an indication you know, that, that, that there are that the people who are the ruling class... I don't like being ruled over by the ruling class, but if I'm going to have a ruling class, I wouldn't mind them ruling. That's the thing. <laughs> There's no point sending your kids to Eton if they're then going to flake out like Generation Snowflake when it all goes terribly wrong. Um, but anyway, right. So the thing, the thing... I wanted to pick up a couple of things, though, because despite the lack of plan question, there, are, there will be people here who will know more in terms of kind of, you know, the policy outcomes. Somebody made reference to uh, being on top of the detail of policy. And I think that it's quite appropriate for the people who do know and are in, work in that area to kind of uh, look and keep their eye on the detail of it. But I don't think that's necessarily uh, something that everybody uh, needs to be on top of. I mean, th uh, there are enough people who are kind of involved in the kind of cute, uh, constitutional uh, detail of it. But what I did disagree with was this idea that, that we had to kind of stick with the new emergence of uh, political language again, like things like popular sovereignty, which I'm delighted about, and that maybe we should keep away from kind of discussions about culture and kind of symbolic meaning and so on. I actually think that that's wrong. I think that we should try and understand the cultural shifts. I think it is not sufficient to simply use the traditional political categories of the past to try and understand contemporary society. We will miss things if we do that. And um, I actually do think there is a culture war, a cultural gap, and things to be explored, as we've discussed. And I think that um, certainly uh, from the Institute of Ideas point of view, I think that's how we've gained huge insights into, into what's going on by understanding things that way. Um, uh, just in terms of what we have to do, um, I, I, I think that I, I don't think we should be complacent about the fact that what has been revealed, I was talking to somebody on the way here, which was the shocking thing that was revealed in the build-up to and subsequent to this referendum was the fragility with which there is either an understanding or a reality of what democracy means. 
I mean, never mind using the words popular sovereignty. If you now say to people, that's what democracy is, they quite straightforwardly say, yes, I know, that's the problem with it. It's become an unapologetic, oh, yeah, I know, it's disaster, you know, mob rule, what happens? You know, there are people. What do they know? I mean, people are explicit about it. So I do think popularising what democracy means and winning arguments, whether people for Brexit or remain, in what it means is very important. I really, really, I, I, I was thinking all the way through about whether we could organise a demonstration in relation to trigger, uh, the Article 15, and I think that is a good idea. I mean, I, I, I don't know what that demonstration would be like, but I do think that, you know, if Corbyn can say he's got 10,000 people outside, you know, supporting him when he's got 500, then we might as well have a go at I also think that... I, 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 they won't be the same people, but I'm, I, I also think... And, and it kind of felt peculiar. I don't want that to happen if we do that. But I do think these days, you know, that's what happens, right? We, so we should just get everyone and do it. But, you know, that's, that's not sufficient. But I think it's the atmosphere of saying we are not leaving here until... I mean, those people outside um, uh, on, on, uh, Westminster at the moment, they're basically saying we're not leaving here until you overthrow the referendum and the popular will. These are the left, progressive lefties, right? What on earth... We have to say, well, a lot of us are not going until you trigger uh, Article 50 because we are on the side of the demos and democracy and that sort of thing. <laughs> Having said that, I'm highly unlikely to be on a permanent vigil outside that place. So we have to actually organise something on a one day and get as many people there as possible. Um, and the, my, 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 final, my final thing, as I would say, is that although you need to do that, I mean, you know, uh, Frank's got carried away with himself. He's standing for Parliament next. But anyway, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not as keen, um, but, but I, am, I am keen to take responsibility for not squandering the moment. I, I, you know, I, I, I want to say to you, because it's important that we have a residential academy coming up, the Institute of Ideas, um, which is universities. It should be for a weekend on the 23rd, I think, and 24th. I've got it in front of me, but I've lost the page. Uh, 23rd and 24th of July. I hope you can come to that because the theme is what is Europe beyond the EU, looking at the history and philosophy of what Europe is. So I hope that people will come to that if they can. I want to say to you, come to the Battle of Ideas on the 21st uh, 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 and 22nd, uh, 23rd and 24th, I can't remember when that is, bloody hell, of, July, of October, it's not for ages. Anyway, come to that because we're going to have lots of these discussions. But it's not sufficient, I realise, to just simply say, come to events we're organising. I want to say, read Spike, send Spike to your friends, get everyone to the Battle of Ideas, all that. It's not sufficient. I know that, you know that, it's not going to work. And so I would suggest that from this event at least, that we actually have a quite, that you put pressure on those of us who've organised this event to work with us to make sure certain things don't just get left till the next conference. But on the other hand, I would also say that we're not going to all become, you know, headless chickens running around like activists. We also have to, as I said earlier, have a bit of humility about the fact that we also have to do some work. I mean, try and understand, really genuinely try and understand what's going on. That's going to take some intellectual work and also some bravery at facing people down and actually saying whether you will remain, whether you're for Brexit, now if they overturn this democratic decision, everyone in the remain camp will regret it too because if democracy loses, we're all screwed, right? So let's go out and fight for democracy. <laughs> Thank you very much.